Pixel Therapy is a member of the But Why Though Podcast Network. Go to butwhythopodcast.com for an inclusive geek community offering pop culture news, reviews, and podcasts. I mean, essentially, noir is, you know, for all intents and purposes, a bunch of people's attempt to explain their PTSD to the public. Mm. The nature of unexamined trauma, the chance to maybe give somebody the opportunity through this game to maybe see something that lets them address that or, you know, even face it. That's really important. Welcome to Pixel Therapy, the video game podcast where we look at the games we play through the lens of the player, where what you play is just as important as how you play it, and where emotional intelligence is a critical stat. Every three weeks, we bring on a guest who may or may not consider themselves a gamer to discuss the games that have made them and changed them and all the feelings they have about our favorite pastime. I'm your co-host, Jamie, pronoun she, her. And I'm your co-host, Spencer, pronouns they, them. And this is Pixel Therapy. Let's start the episode as we always do with our Patreon shoutouts. It's our special thank you to everyone who subscribed at our Patreon name in the credits tier. And today it is a new month. So we are thanking everyone who supported us for the month of July. That means a very big thank you to Genevieve, Lindsay, Jackie, Ben, Pimpatai, Adiyinka, and CD Mess. Thank you all for your support. Remember, if you want to get your name in the credits, you can hop on over to patreon.com slash pixel therapy pod where you can subscribe for as little as just $2 a month and get access to our monthly bonus series, Co-op Mode. Our July episode uh, had us talking about some puzzle games (laughs) that we're getting into. Some brain teasers. Some brain teasers. Just tickling tickling our little noodles and putting them to work. (laughs) Um, So if you want to hear us talking about uh, some fun puzzle games, come on over. And uh, throw us that two dollars, and you can you can listen to the July co-op mode mm-hmm. episode, and many more. Of course, if you're a fan of what we do here on Pixel Therapy, please consider sharing us with your friends and family, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, or you can even write into the show by emailing us at pixeltherapypod at gmail We'd love to hear from each and every one of you. All right, it's time to get cozy. Pull up an armchair. Feel free to lie down on the couch. Let's talk about our feelings. Spencer, how are you? I'm well, Jamie. I <laughs> I feel like last time we talked, I said that I was fire emblemed out after spending 90 plus hours yeah, playing yeah. um Fire Emblem Three Houses, which came uh-huh. out in 2019. Well, <laughs> Fire Emblem Warriors Three Hopes just came out a couple oh, weeks boy. ago. It's like they they knew that I was just playing the first Mm-hmm. the last Fire Emblem game. And so they mm-hmm. were like, why, why don't we do you a favor and release a new one? Here you go, right Spence, just finishing. for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought, I was like, this isn't for me. I don't like this kind of game. It's a Musou style, also called like a hack and slash action adventure game. Mm-hmm. And I really was not thinking it was for me because those types of games really stress me out. It's like thousands of enemies are coming at you at once from all sides. And it's a bit more in the moment strategy, like you need to know what type of moves to use on X enemy or what order to send another character to get a combo across. It's all about like combos and timing and, and all this stuff that's very stressful to me. But I was so, I was so into the premise because um, I may have mentioned this in the last episode. So sorry if this is a rehash, but 
in Fire Emblem Three Hopes, the main character that you played in the last game is the villain in this game. Mm-hmm. And um, I was really just like, I was very taken by that concept. Like I was like, I love this idea of, like, I think Fire Emblem is all about perspectives. Like really, it feels like any conflict uh, you can be swayed based on knowing more about what's on your enemy's side. And so like a lot of the game is having conviction in your actions, even when you don't fully agree with them anymore. And about kind of like the pointlessness of war of like, after a certain point, you're kind of like, we all could be right in this particular conflict. And why am I killing my friends? Why am I seeing my friends die? Um, Mm -hmm. But also being kind of about like, after a certain point, like, even if you may have once agreed, like, they're killing your friends, so whose side are you going to be on? Anyway, it's just kind of about mm-hmm. emotions. And um, so I started playing. <laughs> I started playing it. <laughs> I have to say, um, Nintendo's offering, like, there's a demo you can get of the game, and that's where I started. And it was a surprisingly robust demo. It's like almost, it's like the first three hours of gameplay. Um, So it really gives you a good sense of what you're getting into. And I don't know if it was because, um, like I'm saying this because uh, Persona 5, a game that I love, Mm -hmm. um, a Musou style game came out for Persona 5, Persona Strikers. Yeah, yeah. I could not get into it. It was just overwhelming and difficult and i i just it wasn't worth it to me but something i don't know i think with with this fire emblem game there's such a rich mix of um non-battle activities a lot like three houses where you're building relationships sharing meals doing various cute little relationship building activities and something about that is just like really charming to me so I'm playing a hack and slash game. They said it would never happen. Um, <laughs> Who's I love Fire Emblem. They is me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I'm very grateful to the Fire Emblem series for being a late in life, like obsession. Not late in life. I just mean like <laughs> late in my gaming life. Like, <laughs> <laughs> As oh you prepare for the grave. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, life ends at 30, right? Is that Oh no, truly <laughs> not. I'm just kidding. I have, a, I have a friend who's turning 30 and she's like freaking out about it. But like oh, yeah. honestly, I'm I'm like at this rate, all of the things that we used to use to signify success and progression in our lives, like getting married, getting a career setting yourself up for your future, whatever it means to be an adult, like those mm-hmm. arbitrary, like I'm, I'm not saying I agree with those things, but I think <laughs> as a society, we measure our lives yeah. by these life events, but because of the fucked upness of our society and capitalism, it's like all of that's been stretched out and rearranged mm-hmm. and there's mm-hmm. just no, there's no scale anymore. So like, don't worry yeah. about how old you are, honestly. And there kind of never was a scale, right? It's mm-hmm. just, uh, <laughs> What's the word I'm looking for? Rigid puritanical <laughs> society expectations in America. Yeah, those, those words. <laughs> well, Jamie, how are you? I'm playing Fire Emblem Warriors and somehow finding time to do other things. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing okay. I have, like, work has finally gotten to the point where I feel like I can relax a little bit. So I've been diving into a lot of games, diving into some different uh, shows and programs. 
I just kind of feel like I've been in a little bit of autopilot the last week or so, just kind mm-hmm. of like do work, work and make dinner, sit mm-hmm. down, brain off yes. uh, mode, which I think has been needed, but also makes me like not a very interesting person to talk to. It's like, <laughs> what's going on for you? It's like, I don't know, man. I live my life vicariously through the media <laughs> I consume. That's kind of all I got going on right this second. Have you watched uh, The Bear? I we watched the bear. Yes, I told you about the bear. Oh, you we're did. Like, I told you to watch the bear. <laughs> so that's why I'm watching the bear. See, I, don't, I don't know anything either. I'm just going on autopilot too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I guess I won't take full credit. I mean, you seem to already know the bear existed when I mentioned it to you. But yeah, but you were the push I needed to to press. Yeah, play. no. Uh, we we well, I watched the bear. Um, my partner didn't watch that with me. I like binged it in a day. It was very oh, good, wow. very intense. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, this is a, a show with a, it was Jeremy Allen White. Yes. I want to say his name is, which mm-hmm. is, he played the oldest brother in Shameless. Lip. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Um, and he's the main character. He's a young, younger brother who comes home to run the family business, um, which is a like beef steak sandwich shop mm-hmm. in, Philly in Chicago in Chicago (laughs) (laughs) like try to remember it's been a couple weeks since I watched it um and the business is kind of like failing his older brother kind of ran into the ground a little bit um so he but he was working previously as like a five-star chef yeah and he comes home to run this family restaurant and how he's trying it's like about him trying to pull it together but I think the most fascinating thing about the show is how intensely it like uh puts on the like how intensely it pictures uh kitchen culture mm. um i've worked in a couple of different restaurants one of them's applebee's <laughs> what up mm-hmm. <laughs> applebee's <laughs> spot in the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah so i don't i have not worked in a five-star kitchen i don't want to misrepresent my kitchen experience but i have worked in small family restaurants and and chain restaurants and there is like a very specific thing about working in a kitchen mm-hmm. uh just a level of intensity and there's a kind of like there's a controlled chaos to it and there's also like kitchen people i don't Mm. know there's so much in the show like i see the characters in the show and it's like oh i worked with someone like that i work with someone like this guy i work with this person like this type of person i I don't know it's just like the four or five people that you'll find in every kitchen (laughs) and they are real it really exists so it's been really it was really interesting to watch that show and kind of like relive some of that kitchen stuff and also the way the show captures the the aspect of they're never feeling like there's enough time for anything mm. when you're working in a kitchen. I think really it makes it a very intense show. Uh, even though yeah. it's kind of, it's, it, yeah, it's just like brings this like hyper intensity to everything that's happening because it mm-hmm. never feels like there's enough time to, to do anything or like have the kind of character moments that the show wants to have. So yeah. Yeah. Really good. Really good show. What did you think of it? Yeah. I, I think I'm struck by the scope of the show. Being, like there's no at least so far we're about halfway through I think it's a mini series so there's like eight episodes mm-hmm. but there's no like grand conspiracy or you know big how is this affecting the future like, like that I feel like is in a lot of dramas even 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 smaller ones but like mm-hmm. the show is so grounded in in telling this person's story but like you said I feel like the the vitality and passion and 
zaniness of kitchen life is something that so few people who haven't had those types of jobs ever see or experience. And it's like, it makes watching it, it brings it to this level of intensity that it like doesn't even matter that the scope of the show is is a bit smaller or just about a, a regular person trying to get by. Like it, it makes it feel as high stakes as like some kind of intense drama. Um, mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. that part of it. And at least in my household, we've taken to, we cook dinner together like almost uh-huh. every night. And so we started saying yes, chef to each other and, <laughs> and giggling. <laughs> I love that. I love that. One more thing I'll say about the show too is the editing is mm. like super good. And I really love the way they'll undercut um, kind of like sometimes mundane, sometimes like heightened, like everything feels more heightened because yeah. of the environment in which it's happening. Mm. So a conversation could be somewhat mundane, but it feels more heightened because the main character is literally like chopping onions with a very sharp <laughs> knife, yes! very fucking fast while yes! he's having this conversation. And it just undercuts everything with this feeling that like someone could get seriously injured at any point, yes. which is the reality of working in a kitchen, but you become so, uh, mm. Uh, like just conditioned to mm. it when you're working in that environment that you're every time you're picking up a super sharp knife, you're not thinking like, oh, I could lose a finger if I'm mm. not careful. You're just doing it while you're talking, while you're looking around. And I don't know, it, it captures that. And it just gives everything this feeling of like, oh my God, something bad is going to happen at every moment of the show. Yeah. And it's never, the bad stuff that happens is never what you are most afraid of happening. Yes. It's like they, the bad stuff happens within the emotional drama, but that in that like, like physical fear uh, that they undercut everything with as people are like working with open flames and, and boiling liquids and sharp mm. knives uh, just adds this like, yeah, really visceral intensity to everything. That is so fucking real. Like I'm literally on the edge of my seat at every episode, like watching someone just drop a fucking <laughs> onion and being like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And then the scene ends and I'm like, oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. So anyway, if you want to want to get your heart pumping, go check mm. out The Bear. Yeah. I think it did get just get renewed for a second season, which is super yes. exciting. Super exciting to see that on Hulu. Yeah. So check it out. Yeah. Uh, so what are you playing, Spencer? Yeah. Aside, well, aside from Three Hopes. <laughs> yeah, somehow I'm finding time. Well, as is normal for my CEO gaming hours, I <laughs> woke up at 6 a.m. this morning and played a little game in time for our 1 p.m. recording, um, yes. which is the game everyone's talking about, Stray, uh, <laughs> on timed exclusivity for the PS5, which hopefully means it'll come out soon for other platforms. Um, it's an adventure video game from Blue 12 Studio and published by Annapurna that just came out like a week ago. Yeah. Um, on PlayStation and PC. Um, I've been calling this game The Cats of Us because you play a little, oh my little cat guy in a big post-apocalyptic world. Um, That's amazing. And I'd say it's mainly a platformer, but there are some scary... A cat former? A cat former. <laughs> with some um, chase elements. Like, I-, I get very stressed out by, like, being a little guy being chased by things that yeah. will, are trying to eat me. That's like one of the things I hate most about the last of us. Like, okay. If you are telling me I have to go kill some people, like I get that, but the parts where zombies are coming at me and I literally have nothing to do, but run. That really gets me. I have to jazz myself. Yeah. Up. You so don't like honestly, being totally disempowered. Yeah. Totally vulnerable and, and disempowered. Um, but stray, I mean, first of all, this game has exploded. 
um, which is really cool to see. Like, like people, all sorts of people are playing this game. Mm-hmm. Um, it's everyone loves cats. Everyone loves cats. Like, I, I saw some, some tweets kind of comparing it to the success of Untitled Goose Game, mm. and it's sort of touching on there's some desire within humans to just be a little cute animal (laughs) yeah i think that's real i mean that's what initially appealed to me about the game yeah Uh, because full disclosure i I played straight as well in the last couple of weeks and yeah i mean yeah it's just fun to be an animal and not even just i think this game even takes it a step further where it's like a and, and i think goose game did the same it's not an anthropomorphized animal it's like you're very much playing as a cat mm-hmm. uh, and they're trying to make it as close to a real cat as possible not a cartoon cat this, yeah. you know this cat's not turning and winking at the camera yeah it's not it's not it's shooting not, off jazzy one-liners yeah no like you're playing as a real sort of god cat and i think goose game tried to capture that too like what yeah. would it be like you know what's a day in the life of a goose yeah uh you know living among people like a tamed goose that's that's just doing its thing and creating chaos so yeah, absolutely. It's, and uh, and we mean literally, like you use your left and right triggers to scratch things. You yeah. press oh, you press circle to meow. Uh yeah. you jump up on platforms, you trip people, you can rub up against them, uh you can take naps, uh you can like push push things off of higher places. Of yeah. <laughs> That's a big yeah. part of the game. Um, and essentially the story of Stray is that you are a cat living um, in in nature um, mm-hmm. and, and there's no real, you get the sense from the opening scene of the game that humanity, civilization has crumbled, um, not really many humans around, and you are in a small colony of cats that is your family. Um, you're running around as cats do and you fall into um, what appears to be a large walled city full of robots. Um, And you're doing what you can to get back to your family, but also um, sort of help these robots um, maybe escape that city and this dystopian um, society that they found themselves trapped in sort of a city um, that's the technology has broken down and all these robots are sort of trapped, still going through the motions of what life was like hundreds of years ago. Um, something that we wanted to mention was, um, there have been some pieces coming out in the wake of the game's release. Um, the setting of the game is very much this cyberpunk neon soaked, um, crowded, very urban city with very little nature. Um, And upon looking at the aesthetics, it's deeply inspired by the Kowloon walled city, um, which was a real place that existed in Hong Kong in the late 1880s. Um, It was essentially like a bunch of people moved into what was an abandoned military base. And the city was eventually torn down by the government in the 1990s. A bunch of folks were misplaced. um, And, you know, a lot of Western media has drawn influence from what some might say is an exotified uh, sort of Orientalist uh, interpretation of what Kowloon Wall City was. Um, many Western writers have taken the fact that it has this sort of mysterious and unique origin. Um, it was called the Dark City. It was very lawless. Um, there were all sorts of people living among each other. Um, 
and it was a literally dark setting. Like it was, it was a walled city, very crowded. And so it was often um, very dark and it's kind of created this particular Western aesthetic um, that's inspired a ton of movies and games from the Ghost in the Shell anime to even Christopher Nolan's Batman um, have, have taken direct inspirations from Kowloon World City. Um, and so for obvious reasons, this has raised some concerns. Um, uh, the developer of Stray is a French, um, primarily white studio. Um, and the game, you know, has certainly mixed in some, like, compressed... Chinese and Japanese aesthetics, like you see paper lanterns about, you see people wearing um, like straw rice hats. Um, you see these uh, streets and like little ramen shops and little uh, just like almost um, like Shibuya, Tokyo inspired um, neon soaked streets and shops all packed together. Um, and mm -hmm. so I, we think, you know, um, the two of us are, we don't feel like we've done enough reading and understanding of of the issue to make a particular comment on it we're just bringing it up because it's something that we think is important to be aware of when you're engaging with the game um this isn't a problem specific to stray it's something um i think we've been talking about a lot this year especially with games like sifu that are like overtly appropriating um Chinese aesthetic stereotypes and using them as props in a decidedly um, non-respectful way. Um, you know, I think it calls into questions. We could have a whole conversation about like, where do game aesthetics come from? What should they look like? How do we respect cultures without defaulting to um, something that just defaults to European standards to be quote unquote safe? Um, but mm -hmm. we think it's just important to raise to be aware of when you when you're thinking about playing the game. And it might be a good idea to do some reading on the Kowloon Walled City and learn about um, that piece of Hong Kong history. Yeah, I think if if nothing else, um, kind of learning about this in the in the wake of the game coming out, it was. I, I was completely ignorant to mm. this city even existing, um, its influence on popular culture, on Western media. And so I, I think it's just an interest. It's something that we recommend folks look, look up and, and read about and learn about because it, the influence is seen in a lot of places mm. and it's depicted in a lot of ways and using an, an aesthetic in a lot of places. And the fact that this could have been the source material for so much of this. And yet I think as Westerners, we typically aren't even like informed about yeah. where this ties back to. I just think it's important to know where things come from um, and not just assume that this was an aesthetic that developers completely created on their own out of nowhere. So mm -hmm. like Spencer said, we're not really making a, a strong judgment here one way or the other. It's more just about like understanding the history of where things, where things come from mm -hmm. and, and elevating that. And it's uh, yeah, it's super interesting how this has proliferated and, and the history of the actual city. So we recommend looking it up. Oh yeah. But um, Stray, I mean, I was blown away. Like, I don't know what I expected, but I've never felt so deeply immersed in a game, uh, like a platform type game. Like, this is a short game. It's maybe six to eight hours to complete. Yeah. Um, but like, I thought Horizon Zero Dawn was doing something really they were, <laughs> and they were really um, next level with the sort of wayfinding and climbing mechanics in the game. Mm. Um, like it felt very natural to reach for a stone and it, or know where to climb, which is kind of uh, 
at the time, 2016, 2017, was very novel, like not feeling mm-hmm. like the path forward was super obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, and Stray, like there's really nothing in terms of uh, an, an HUD HUD. I don't know how people say it. Heads up display. Yeah. The, the UI that appears on screen when you're playing a game that shows you like what way you're going, where the map is, what your next checkpoints and objectives are. It, it, there's none of that. You are a mm-hmm. cat. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. And um, you're you in don't these... have a quest log. You're <laughs> yeah, not. <laughs> you're not journaling every few minutes. Oh my god! Can you imagine? Because the journal, especially the journal, is like a game mechanic yeah, and like yeah. a way for tracking quests has become such a thing so yeah. like now i'm just like imagining the cat fucking has a little journal and it's yeah. just like hold on let me whip this meow, out meow, meow, yeah. Meow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my god like none of that and yet and the cities like uh i think there was some there was some hubbub shortly before the game came out because it promised uh, sort of an open world adventure. And then it mm. closer to the release, it turned out that, well, it's not quite open world. You're, you're in certain areas and you have ex- free exploration of those areas. That being said, I never felt like I was on any sort of track going yeah, into no. the game. Even like, oh, like there's various little, um, missions you have to do within an area to be able to proceed to the next one and it might be something like you need to find a specific person or you need to find a specific object somewhere in the city and i just i was really just floored by the design because even though it was easy to get lost there were so many alleyways and little tiny spaces only a cat can fit into um really detailed apartments and restaurants and shops like it felt so real, but at the same time, I, I was amazed at the way that I was able to navigate through it in a way that felt super intuitive. But I know that that was intentional design leading me forward. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't know if you wanted to say some things about the just the. No, world I mean building. mostly, mostly just double click on on everything you're saying. I think the world design is it in terms of appearance and like graphical fidelity. This game is gorgeous. Yeah, looks very realistic for what they're doing. I mean it. it like yeah realistically designed like it's very clearly designed but looks realistic within that design beautiful coloring and lighting the lighting in this game is Mm. chef's kiss it's Mm -hmm. so good um and the world does a really good thing of you know to your point it's like the game's broken into chapters and there are chapters that are pretty straightforward like there's one clear path and you're pretty much going to be taking that path and then there's a few different chapters in the game where you come into a section of the city like a you know a neighborhood basically and your that whole area is open to you for the next chunk of the mm. game where you're going to be meeting different characters and it, you are completing quests but again like we said there's no tracker for these things it's all very um it's all done very intuitively a character will be like oh you need to go talk to this character and they're up in that building and he'll gesture towards that building and and the camera will pan and you'll see oh there's a very distinct building that has this orange awning Mm. so i need to get all the way up there and get into the window at that building and then the control's given back to you and you do it there's no marker on your map there's nothing that you're trying to follow that you know that orange awning is not like high lit but you can see it from the ground and as you climb up onto the buildings like okay there i can see it pretty easy to figure out your path but you're still within a space yeah that to your point has all these alleyways buildings windows uh little 
paths, little stairways, fences that you can jump up onto. And it feels huge mm-hmm. at first when you first get into the area. And then as you start to explore it, the the real intelligence of the design comes through because it's huge for a cat. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's not huge for a person, but it feels huge for a cat because there's so much variety of, of paths that you can take and little mm-hmm. nooks and crannies to explore while still be, being like ultimately like a pretty condensed area yeah. for you to maneuver through. Yeah. And so I think the game uh is ma- it makes it deceptively more uh like deceptively bigger yeah. than the actual space really is because there's so many different ways to move through the space. Mm. And you're rewarded for ev- for each different way that you go. Mm-hmm. It's not like, oh, well, I stayed on the ground and that was boring. Like, no, if you stay on the ground, <laughs> that's where the other characters are. And you'll yeah. find bits of dialogue and people doing things and uh, find different, you know, there's like a side quest, quote unquote, to mm. collect all the piece, all the mu- the sheet music for this, uh, for someone who's basically a, a street performer mm. who's sitting in a corner alley and he's playing his guitar. And if you go find pieces of music and bring them to him, he'll play different songs on his guitar. Totally not attract quest yeah. at all. Just a <laughs> thing you can discover and mm. do and bring to him. Um, but it all feels super organic because it's condensed enough that you can actually find those things and, and learn the city to get back to him. Mm-hmm. You don't feel lost. Like you, you because you have to navigate it yourself. And I think this is something that people praised Elden Ring for. Like mm. hilariously enough is like, you didn't necessarily get lost because the game was giving you these really organic instructions for like, oh, you're going to go to this place and this is what it looks like. And if you follow those directions as you would in real life, then you would get there. Yeah. And Stray almost does the same thing, but in a much more condensed way. Stray for game of the year. <laughs> Step aside, Elden Ring. Yeah, it's probably not going to happen. But. You couldn't give us little furry guy. i will say i don't want to say too much more about the story and stuff about stray because i think that it's again it's pretty short and sweet and it's just such a visual treat um one thing i wanted to mention was again i really think this dual shock controller for the ps5 it's Man. a dual sense now. Sorry, the dual sense. Oh, well. <laughs> get the branding um, right. Get the Come branding on. right. Um, like, wow, it's just it always it really consistently has blown me away how games yeah. have been using more and more of the sort of haptic feedback feature. Um, but even things like when the cat is scratching on a wall or a or a trunk, there's slight resistance in the triggers, so it takes a little bit more force to push them down. Versus when I'm not scratching something, the triggers move a little bit more easily. Like it's like such a subtle change in the weight of the trigger that really adds to the immersion of I'm scratching a wall. And then there's this feature where you can purr, um, where like um, there's certain spots where like if your cat sees like a little pile of pillows or a blanket or even a (laughs) sleeping person, you can go lay down and curl up on them and take a little cat nap. And as you do that, you start purring. And um, this is like a scientific thing that cat purrs, the frequency and vibration, it soothes the human nervous system probably through thousands of years of human and cat interaction. Mm -hmm. Um, But what holding that controller and uh, there have been moments where I lay down and the camera will sort of slowly zoom out to show you a bird's eye view of the world that you're in. And this very calming music will play. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and it honestly is soothing, especially yeah. if you hold the controller close to your chest and stuff. Like it looks, sounds, and feels like real cat purrs. Mm-hmm. So like it's very therapeutic, and I really appreciated that touch. So. Yeah, I don't know if there's anything you wanted to add about. I know you love talking about controller stuff too. <laughs> no, I, I agree with that. They the team really did a great job incorporating the um the haptic feedback in the dual sense. And I think it's a great showcase for why that the controller alone is one of the best pieces of the up mm-hmm. and like one of the best cases for upgrading from a PS4 to a yeah. PS5, which is a weird thing to say, but the the dual sense continues to impress and mm-hmm. I really yeah, it was it's just really awesome. Like I I kept I did it and like handed the controller to my partner. I was like, holy shit, doesn't that feel like a real cat bird? Yeah, yeah he was like chuckling. Um is yeah, it's just so soothing and, and cute. Yeah. Really special little game. Mm-hmm. So stray, hug your cats or <laughs> find a cat to hug. Um, highly recommend. It's awesome. But um, Jamie, what are you playing? Uh, yeah, so I mean, I did play Stray, like I said earlier, but I finished that the weekend it came out because I am a silly person um, <laughs> who spends too much time playing video games. Um, so then I I moved on to a game that just came out. I think this, yeah, released on the same day as Stray, um, <laughs> a game on the other side of the tracks. Um, our mortal enemy as PlayStation fans. Uh, this game came to Xbox, <gasps> came on Game Pass. How no, dare I'm you? We don't believe in consoles. Yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I played a game called As Dusk As Dusk Falls. Uh, this is a narrative adventure game developed by Interior Night and published by Xbox Game Studios uh, that came specifically to PC and Xbox. And like I said, it was, it was on Game Pass, uh, which is always a big selling point for me. Uh, definitely love my Game Pass subscription. Mm-hmm. Um, but Interior Night, uh, if you're not familiar with them, they're an independent game studio created by uh, or headed by Caroline Marshall, who is the former lead game designer for Heavy Rain and Beyond Two Souls. So this is someone who left Quantic Dream. Um, mm. If you follow the news at all, Quantic Dream... They made Heavy Rain. They made Beyond Two Souls. Most recently, they made Detroit Become Human. Interesting games, uh, deep narrative games, games that I played as they came out and and really enjoyed what they were doing as mm-hmm. far as like a narrative, like creating complex narrative games. Uh, David Cage, the head of that studio, big piece of shit. Mm. Really, really terrible person. Um, I'm not even going to get into all of it, but like he's just created like a really hostile (laughs) work environment. It sounds like at the studio and is like just generally um, a person who has his head very far up his own asshole. So go read about David Cage if uh, if you don't know. Um, But I was really intrigued by the idea that this is uh, someone who came out of that studio and created her own studio and is trying to do narrative games in a different way, albeit with a much smaller budget. I think if you've played Heavy Rain or any of those games, these are very high budget, like uh, very detailed CGI experiences. As Dusk Falls is doing a really complex and interesting thing with a narrative game, but the art style, because of the smaller budget, um, had to do something really different. And I think the art style is the first thing people notice when they pick up As Dusk Falls. So I'm going to talk about that a bit first. Mm. Because they, the studio made the choice that they wanted to be able to capture 
like very human emotions. This is a narrative game. So being able to really see emotions play out on characters' faces uh, was important to the immersion and the impact of the story on people playing the game and making decisions. Um, But being a smaller team, they didn't necessarily have the time or budget to do fully detailed CGI, CGI models. So instead, they made the choice to essentially create a game of still images that are blended together as the story progresses. So what the game looks like is like very detailed, almost painted uh, stills of the characters in action, like going through the story. And those stills will morph to uh, different images in the scene, like one per like 20 to 30 seconds. So you'll see a character standing in a doorway and you'll hear the voice. It's all voice acted. So you'll hear the voice action of, of the character talking and then it will uh, fade into another image of the character. Oh, now it looks like he's in motion as he steps through the doorway and then it will fade into him standing at the counter. So you get kind of three images that convey his motion as he moves into the building and the, the dialogue is all happening in real time. Um, I don't know. It creates this weird effect of almost like you're listening to a radio play, but you do have images to kind Mm. of back up what you're seeing happening. It definitely is a little, for me, it was a little off-putting at first because mm. it is a little weird to have there is some motion to the images and sometimes like cars will move in the background and they'll just mm. like be dragged across the screen and, <laughs> and like their yeah. tires aren't moving. Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to explain. <laughs> um, but ultimately, like after I played for 45 minutes an hour, I kind of stopped noticing mm. how strange the art style was and got sucked into the story. So okay. I have heard folks talk about like they couldn't get past the art style. I do think it's a thing. I think it's either going to work for you if it's not, but I think it's worth giving it a shot and seeing if it you kind of become used to it after a little bit. It's unique. It's definitely unique and has a, a, an interesting effect as a player. But I think if this is what they need to be able to do to get across the emotional complexity of the narrative and be able to make games the way they want to make them, I'm I'm all for it. Like I think it works well enough that if this is what they need to do, go ahead and do it. Um, The actual gameplay too. So because they opted to do this and, and there really isn't any, there's no characters in motion through the game, it does mean that you're never directly controlling a character moving through a space, Hmm. which is something else that the Quantic Dream games do. There's oftentimes, and a lot of narrative games, you know, you'll be given control of a character as you move through an environment. This game has none of this. This is more like watching a, I would say it's closer to watching like a television show than watching a movie Hmm. necessarily, but it's like watching a piece of contact content and just getting to weigh in almost like a choose your own Mm. adventure style sort of a thing there are oh go ahead i was just gonna say is it kind of like like a comic like a like watching a comic sort of yeah like because it's it's like still images but kind of the overlay of the next image creates Mm -hmm. the illusion of movement Yep. That's yeah. just really interesting. Okay, keep it's, going. Yeah, it's super, super fascinating. I've never seen um I've never seen a game or, or piece of animation do something mm. like this. So very unique. Um but yeah, so you're they wanted players to be engaging with the game, uh like through the controller. I think I saw a thing that was like they wanted that at like every 30 seconds or so, they wanted you to mm. be engaging in some way. Okay. And so you're you have a lot of prompts that you're responding to. Most of these, the vast majority of these, are making dialogue decisions. Mm. Um, uh, you will always go into a chapter playing from the pers- 
playing from the perspective of, of a specific character. So comparing this to something like the Quarry that I played uh, like a month or so ago, whenever it was, um, you're always, you always are grounded in a specific perspective by the scene or whatever that you're playing. It's not like you're omniscient and making decisions for everyone. Um, and so that's the main way that you're you're engaging with the game is you're playing from a specific character's perspective and you're making dialogue decisions for that character. Character B says something to your character, character A, and you're choosing how to respond from a series of kind of like, they don't give you the entire sentence, but you get like a few words to suggest what the nature of their response is. You select that response and then you get a bit of dialogue as the character responds. Mm. Something else comes back to you, you respond again that kind of a thing. There's also little quick time events. So like actions that need to be completed, you might get a little prompt, but I think these, they do these really smartly because they don't want this to be a game that's challenged. Like there's, it's not intended to be challenging Mm. in the sense of like mechanically challenging. So when you get quick time event prompts, it's just like, Oh, a, a joystick needs to go up. You can choose if you want to do the right joystick or the left joystick. It doesn't matter. There's just an an up arrow on Mm. the screen and you have a timer to hit that. Or it'll be like, mash a button. You can mash any of the the letter buttons. I don't know what they're called on the Xbox. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what the letters are. They're weird. It's like A, B, X, Y or something like that. I don't yeah. understand where Xbox came up with this, <laughs> but that's what they have. So it doesn't even tell you like, oh, you have to mash a specific button. It's just like mash a button and you choose. Cool. Um, so there'll be like button mashes, like moving joysticks left or right, things like that. And that'll be your quick time event that you have to succeed through to, or if you fail, it's not like you die or a fail state or anything. It like, it just changes the way the story plays out. Um, that's, that's how you're interacting with the game. That's what the game looks like. The game itself, the narrative that they're telling, I personally thought was pretty interesting. I don't think this is not a story that I, hmm. It didn't change my life or anything. And this wasn't the <laughs> traditional type of story that I would like be like, oh, I was like so emotionally invested mm-hmm. in this. This is so good. Um, I think it's f- a fun story. I think it's a fun experience. But essentially, it's a kind of like a heist movie where you play mm-hmm. as both uh, you play as a character on the robber's side and you play as a character that at, like one of the hostages. Oh. Uh, and they both have their own motivations. I think the characters are very interesting as much Mm. as like the, the core premise of the game and like kind of all this stuff that they set up was kind of, I don't know. It just, it felt like a lot of drama that they created. It kind of reminded me a bit of, and it's, and it's set in a very rural area in, I think Arizona. Um, It reminded me a bit of like hell or high water. If Mm. you've seen that movie with, is it Chris Mm -hmm. Pine? That's kind of what the, the main story reminded me of. so it just it gets a little like melodramatic in some sections. There's some stuff they expect you to like buy that like emotional beats that didn't necessarily work for me. Mm. But the actual characters themselves and getting to invest in their story and make the decisions to try to protect their family, protect their themselves throughout the narrative was really compelling um, because you are putting a lot of life or death scenarios. You're put in situations where you're trying to, you know, the the main character that you play as the hostage, he's there with his wife and his, his young daughter, who's only six and Mm. his father who has brain cancer. And so they're kind of, they're in a very heightened situation. They're actually in the middle of like moving 
um, a few states over because he lost his job through like a pretty dramatic situation. And so, mm. and, and his, there's like strains with his wife. And so you're kind of like trying to navigate all of that while keeping everyone safe and alive. On the, the robber's side, you play as the youngest of three brothers who is kind of coerced into doing this. He's only 18. His two older brothers kind of put this together. Their family is struggling financially due to some gambling problems that their dad has. And so they've made the decision to do this robbery and now hold these folks at this hotel hostage mm. or motel hostage. And he's not really sure he wants to be a part of this. He's not really sure his family are good people mm. and feeling like really conflicted about that. So they, they pick two characters to center you in that both have a lot of personal conflict going on that makes it really rich and interesting to make decisions as those characters. What makes all of that even cooler is that in between chapters, the game, um, you know, just in total, like, it's cool in like a navel gazy way, but the game gives you information <laughs> about how you're interacting with the game. So at the end of each chapter, it'll put up a screen that tells you like, these are the things that we can tell from you based on the types oh. of decisions that you may are making in this game. Like what? It's like, for me, it was coming up. It was saying like, you're a fast thinker. Like you <gasps> always respond to prompts. Cause every time you're re- asked to respond to something, there's like a timer on the screen. It was like, Oh, you always make decisions immediately. Like <gasps> you're not overthinking these things. Yeah. Like you're making gut decisions really fast. Or it's like, you're very loyal. You make decisions that, that increase your loyalty to the, the people that you're closest to. Um, and you're looking for like sincere interactions. Mm-hmm. Like you approach things with sincerity were some of the things that I got, but it's like giving you feedback on yourself. So first there's like that, which is, I don't know, just fun. It's like the Love same that. reason you take a Buzzfeed quiz, <laughs> yeah. right? You want to like read something interesting about yourself. Yeah. And then it shows this, uh, this big map of all the decision points that happen in the game, like all of the little thing, the choices that you've made with mm. some without even realizing, like there's things that it would show on there that I didn't even realize was a choice. I was making a dialogue decision that was influencing X, Y, Z. And it's this uh, flow chart basically oh. of how all of those decisions branch out and showing oh. you the percentages of other, how many other players, the percentage of how many other players have made those decisions and have ended up where you are. Cool. So, all of that, I think, adds more depth to what's already like what's on its face is like an interesting enough story. But then kind of getting that player feedback and seeing like learning a little bit about yourself, maybe learning a bit about like how you compare to how other people mm. played the game, I think elevated it for me. And all said and done, I think it was like a six or seven hour game. It was definitely like worth the time and the yeah. experience. I definitely think people should check this out. I'm excited to see what Interior Night does next. And I like this as a direction for these types of narrative games. I mean, I like what Supermassive is doing with with like games like The Quarry and mm. leaning into that horror thing. This felt much closer to like a narrative drama I might watch on TV. Um, yeah. And more grounded and less... Despite having elements of things that I would say like came off cheesy, it wasn't intentionally trying to be cheesy. Like yeah. there were some elements in this that felt a bit more lifetime movie than I think they were really going for. But sure. overall, it it was a really compelling narrative. And this is such an easy like they also made this game. Sorry, one more point is that they also made this game so you can play it on your phone. Oh. And and you can play it co-op. So you can have people Uh basically voting on the choices that are being made. And I think those two elements are really what could elevate this type of narrative game. Because I think if you can get this game in more people like, you know, people who like Breaking Bad or like just like heightened 
narrative drama television. Yeah. This is such an easy sell to yeah. folks who like that kind of thing. So I'm really excited to see where this goes next and how they proliferate this. And I think, you know, Microsoft is putting apps on TVs, right? Yeah. They're putting an app on Samsung TVs to start with, but it's coming. And when we get to the point where you can sign up for a subscription for games, play them on your phone, and download it to your television, I Pretty I don't know. Cool. It's cool. It's an interesting future that we're moving towards. And I think games like this, like As Dusk Falls, will do really well in a scenario like that of kind of bridging the gap between people who are looking for an interesting story yeah, and who are interested in games, but aren't just aren't ready to take the steps of like the hardware are overwhelmed by the idea of using a controller. Like mm-hmm. this is such an easy step for folks who are in that category. Yeah. I mean, that is awesome. Um, and just opens up like a whole new avenue for like how people even conceive of what is a video game. Cause it kind of, like you said, like taking out the need for the investment and even knowing a lot of mechanics of how games are played or being unfamiliar with using a controller and stuff like that. Like this game gives so many ways through, through the app to be able to play it through your phone or just the way that the, um, what button you have to press or what joystick you need to use being more open-ended. Like it really just lets you just immerse into the story. It also Mm -hmm. just makes me think about how, um, like when we watch dramas, when we watch, scary situations we often say to ourselves like what would i do in that same situation Mm -hmm. and this game is really like holding a mirror up to all of us like like the part where you see how everyone else what their Mm -hmm. decisions were too like i almost feel like it's like holding us all accountable to like who we are in these situations yeah in a light in a lightweight way (laughs) yeah 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 if you've ever watched a show and been like why is that character doing that like yeah now you can actually be the character and see if it actually goes your way if you make the decisions you think are right so yeah so so that's that's as dusk falls i think people should check it out if uh if anything i said was interesting you know i think i'm saying these two games came out on the same day Stray is probably the better, like, I don't know. I Like, I like Stray better, like, as a whole experience. Um, but SS Fall was a lot of fun. And I think really interesting to see where, where things go next from there for that, that team and kind of games like this in general, narrative decision games. Very cool. Very, very cool. All right, let's go ahead and move into the interview. Uh, Today's interview is unique because we are talking to not one, but two guests from Indigenous-owned and operated game development studio, Achimos Stawistan Games. We're chatting with Sada Kronis, art lead and character designer, and Megan, the founder, owner, and lead game designer. We spent some time at the top of the interview getting to know them both, how they each got into games in the gaming industry, and then we dug in on the currently in development Hill Agency, Purity Decay, which is the team's cyber noir detective game set to release this year, September 1st, on PC, and speaking with them both about their experience developing the game as Indigenous creators uh, Spencer and I really enjoyed the conversation with Sadakronis and Megan, and we know that you all will too. So without further ado, here's our interview with Achimos Stawistan Games.
Hello to our wonderful guests, and thank you so much for joining us in the virtual Pixel Therapy Studio. To start, could you both share your names and your pronouns? Oh, I guess I'll start. Uh, my name is Sat Degrunas, Jung Yats. I'm Ganyang Kahaga, which is known as Mohawk from the Haudenosaunee Nation, known as Iroquois. Um, I am the uh, art lead and uh, character designer for Achimawastan Games, and I'm happy to be here. Um, Danzi, Megan Bernasikasan. Um, I'm Aptuakosisan, or uh, Métis of the Métis Nation of Ontario, and I am the everything else. <laughs> uh, I'm the uh, the founder and lead game designer for Achimel Stalastan Games, and we're working on Hill Agency currently. Awesome. And I can't wait to dive more into Hill Agency. Before we do, could you each tell me a bit about how you spend your time? You mean besides working, right? <laughs> yeah, this question always seems to stump people for a second. But yes, anything you'd like to share about how you like to spend your time? Um, I can go first. Uh, I, I do kind of have like a lot of things that vary depending on, I guess, my energy level. Mm. So if I have full energy, I like to go for like long hikes into the <laughs> local woods and just find edible things and bring them oh home. Gosh, yes. uh, <laughs> I'm right now I'm trying to make um, burdock or is it burdock? Um, it, it's a coffee substitute. It's not going so well, but we're trying uh -oh. that. Uh, and also, yeah, I do some beading, which no one will ever see because my lines aren't straight. And, uh, <laughs> and then I think besides that, uh, I'm just like really, I'm actually quite, I haven't been able to because of the pandemic, but I used to be quite active in sort of like um, creating or working in green grassroots organizations for creating healthier environments in the city that I live in, which is Hamilton, Ontario. Um, I'm, and I'm getting back into that now because that's something that's like really important to me. Yeah, that's what I do. Really cool. Yeah. Um, as far as myself, uh, I honestly, I do, I do a lot of work, so it's, it's sort of, uh, uh if I'm working on one project and I'll, I'll jump onto another one for a bit, uh, do some freelancing. Um, I've done a few things for a few, uh, RPGs and a couple conch projects. Um, when I'm not doing that, usually I'll I'll jump on and try to play some games. Just Hell yeah, because, yeah. I'm I'm a, I'm a console gamer. Like I'm you know I didn't have a PC for a long time, hmm. so uh, I'll jump on. I, I prefer single player games because uh, I'm antisocial like that. <laughs> um, I just want to be told a story, and I don't want to have to deal with like you know toxic people on the internet. So that's that's kind of it. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> or uh, if I'm really feeling it, I'll jump in my car, turn on the loudest uh, punk I got, and then uh, uh, hit the road. And the nice thing is mm -hmm. I, I'm in Seattle, so we have a KEXP, which is like the local kind of everything and indie music, uh, public broadcasting. So I'll, I'll play that and just drive Hell yeah. Yeah. Love a good public radio station. <laughs> yeah. It's the backbone of my mental wellness for sure. <laughs> it's just music. So mm. I, I don't have to worry about anything else. Just just music. Amazing. And 
You mentioned that you're both members of Ashima Stavastan Games, the indie studio behind detective adventure game Hill Agency Purity Decay coming to PC at the end of August. Um, you mentioned at a high level what each of you do at Ashimo Games, but what's sort of a day in the life like for each of you um, as you're working on bringing this game to life? Sonic can go first because you have a more normal day than I do. Yeah, um, I, I lucked out in the sense that I don't have the, uh, the don't have to wear the business hat. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, so I, I'm the art lead for our small team. Um, I'm also the character designer uh, for the game. Um, so for me, what it usually is, is waking up at the crack of noon or whatever. Lies, you're <laughs> so, up before the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, I'm usually, I'm usually awake because I don't, <laughs> I don't sleep. So The life uh, of an artist. Right. Um, but for me, it's, you know, I'll get up, I'll, I'll ping the team, see how things are going, and uh, try to get a rundown of where everybody's at on their tasks. And then I'll jump on my own task list and, uh, you know, just kind of try to bust through that and make sure I'm hitting my targets and my deadlines and just, you know, meandering through the day. And then uh, somewhere around the day, I'll, I'll try to feed myself. And then <laughs> good. <laughs> I, that's, I mean, that's not really true. Like, I mean, I'm the main cook in our house. So, so I'll, I'll usually go and make something to feed everybody else. So, but that's, you know, that's about it. Yeah, being the founder is not fun half of the time, most of the time. Uh, so, like, I have uh, a bunch of roles, some of which have kind of, like, wrapped up and are just more in, like, maintenance mode. So, like, I did the game design, the mechanics design, and I was the narrative designer and the narrative designer. So I did all that work. I did all the um, the documentation, fixed the documentation, until, of course, we got to a point where I'm like, I can't fix it anymore because I have other jobs. Uh. <laughs> uh, so now I'm sort of in the dual role of uh, most of the biz, biz dev plus the writer and that kind of I've actually kind of worked out a plan with my project manager who's like super life-saving which is I get three days to writing and two days just for business mm, um, I love structure so much structure uh, it's actually funny because now with that because not most of the time I'm now I'm just like, oh, my emails are answered and then I'm just waiting for meetings. I actually get more work done for writing on days that uh, I have for business than I was ever before when mm. I just any time was a business day and or a writing day. So yeah, with that structure, that's definitely been super useful. So that's kind of how like my, um, so like a Monday would be, you know, wake up, I have my coffee, uh, I walk to where my office is, which is like 15 minutes away. Um, I kind of fool around on the internet for like five minutes, (laughs) say hi to people on Discord. And then uh, I actually moved all my writing over to my old laptop because for some reason being at my desk just makes me want to do business stuff, even Mm. if it's not necessary. So I'll take that and I'll go sit on the couch or something and and write. And uh, we're currently using Artisee, sorry, yeah, Artisee. Uh, draft which has been fantastic for me um we went through so many tools to try to find something because uh so i have um i I have like a bit of a a cognitive um disability so i can i really struggle with anything that kind of enters into my short-term memory Mm -hmm. and most of the tools definitely require you holding a lot of information in your short-term memory whereas artists use like just write it and 
you'll flow it the same way you would like a blueprint um, mm -hmm. on um, an Unreal. And then you can go back and do all the messy stuff that other ones were like, you gotta hold all this information in your brain while you're doing it. So this has been a super useful tool to me. And then the fact that I can have it on my laptop and it's, this laptop is not a great laptop. And <laughs> this program does not kill it. So it's like a win-win. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very cool. So the tool kind of, does it visualize everything into kind of like a mind map for you to go back and trace ideas that were together? Yeah, it will. So it, it literally lets you just go like this person's talking. Okay, now this person's talking and you've connected it as a flow. Oh. And then you're like, oh, I need a choices. And then yeah, you can get way fancier with it. We're keeping it at like base what it's meant to do. It was designed for writers by programmers mm -hmm. versus cool. like, you know, by programmers for programmers. Yeah. <laughs> One of the funny things I noticed about it is it reminded me of an old visual programming language that was in Unreal called Kismet. Yes. And it, as soon as I saw that, I was just like, oh, man, just took me back to my old studio days. Mm. This is now a productivity tool podcast where uh, we will unpack all the digital treasures that await online. <laughs> That's old. Don't use that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if that one exists anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I absolutely want to dive more into the story of Ashimo games in a second. But before I do, what are each of your personal histories with video games? That will say you, you yeah. actually worked for a real studio. <laughs> well, you know, it's, I, so my personal history, uh, I guess if we want to go way back was, uh, you know, growing up on a reservation that wasn't ours our parents bought an old uh original nintendo from a thrift store so like you know i'm i'm a child of the 80s so <laughs> it's, it's the we were we were getting the nintendo when the super nintendo was already out so we were behind all the time and then uh you know years later ended up seeing this thing called a sony playstation and Final Fantasy VII was like, ooh, I need that. <laughs> so, uh, that was the first console I bought with my own money working summer jobs. Mm. And then um, I kind of was doing a bunch of other stuff, and things didn't work out quite the way I expected. And I was like, well, I'm going to go to art school because I'm not doing anything else. And I happened to make some friends who helped me get an interview at this small studio in Seattle. And uh, next thing I know, I'm, I'm a concept artist on uh, uh, video games on the Xbox and the PlayStation 3 and, and even the PlayStation 4. And uh, so, yeah, I've been kind of tinkering in and out, you know, doing concept art for video games for a number of years now. Very cool. Yeah. What about you, Megan? Uh, so I have a weird... Um, I guess childhood history with games. So my father's a software developer and a network administrator. So we had like PCs before we had GUI on PC. Mm -hmm. So like I learned DOS and my dad had this really weird approach to, I, I guess it's cause like being, um, like I would have been a kid, uh, in the late eighties, um, 
with the the downfall of the consoles, he was like, absolutely no consoles in this house. These are a waste of money and a waste of time. PC games only. Yeah. So I got all the high quality education games, edumatainment. Oh, no. Yeah, I had yes. Reader Rabbit. Uh, yeah. I don't know what that like math one with the number munchers. Oh, the no, the one what's in the radio station. Oh, I don't remember that one. And I, I was. I actually, that was my first experience with QA because there was an error in three <laughs> questions where you would write the right answer and it would say, you're wrong. And here is the right answer, uh, which is what I wrote. So my dad actually helped me message them. Nice. I'd be like, mm. they never fixed it because you can't have <laughs> that. <laughs> but they were like, and they didn't even think they responded. <laughs> They're like this child. Um, <laughs> And yeah, and it was really weird because my uncle, who was like 10 years younger than my mom, he got a Super Nintendo and he would like bring it from Montreal to my grandma's house and we would get to watch him play it because can't have children touching. Of course. And I'm like, Why can't we have that? And my dad would be like, it's too violent. Meanwhile, shows up with freaking like um, Battle Tech, Mech Warriors, mm. and Diablo. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yep. We were allowed to play those. <laughs> oh, because you're sh- killing demons, so that's yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, so that was my first. I didn't get to play on a console um, until the N64. So I was actually an arcade kid. Um, I would spend all of my money. Uh, there was three arcades in my city. The only one that was not assholes to children was up in the mall that was like a million miles away. Mm-hmm. There was actually a very fancy one in the downtown area that had a maitre d at the front which was really like cranky old guy of the arcade of the arcade wow. there's like mm-hmm. chandeliers and like because it, <laughs> it used to be like a really swank like i think it was like a clothing shop uh in the 1900s so it had like chandeliers and like gilded wood and stuff and it's just filled with arcade cabinets and he was just the worst human being possible. Like mm. if you were a girl, you weren't getting in. Or if you looked like a girl, you weren't getting in. Um, if you were too young, you weren't getting in. Uh, I can't even speak. I don't remember seeing a lot of not white boys in there. So mm. that was, but that was like the, uh, we always tried to sneak in like, Oh, maybe he won't pay attention. Cause he's taking a smoke. Yeah. <laughs> but he would go in and look and he would, if he saw you and he didn't think you should be in his arcade, he would kick you out. So that mm. was like, my first experience with toxic gamer culture. Mm. <laughs> wow, what an adventure. You had to really, like, there was a whole heist before you could even get to the games. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Makes sense for the game you're creating now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and before we get into that, Megan, what called you to create your own game studio? Oh, that's such a hard question. Every time people bring it up, I was like, why did I do this to myself? It's like every um, indie game developer, right? <laughs> I was a child and I was an idiot. Like, that's, <laughs> I can't really say that. People don't want to hear that. Um, I, I think a lot of it came from... Um, I mostly got into video games to get away from a shitty economic situation. But then when I got into actually making video games, I was like, oh, I don't want to just make whatever. Like, this was, uh, I have a background in theater. I actually 
was hoping to become a theater set and lighting designer. Like that was mm. my goal for a really long time. And then 2008 happened. So we're not getting anything. Yeah. Um, and I realized it was like theater in ways that I'd never really appreciated playing. Like the making of video games was so much like theater. And uh, I think I really got into the headspace of I want my own studio after I got and uh, I got invited or no, oh, I, I submitted an application to a little weird project that was coming out of Dane's making games, which was called Indigicade, which was just like a workshop for indigenous uh, youth. Mm. <laughs> I'm so old. Uh, for indigenous <laughs> youth, uh, to, to like just come and learn to make video games. And I was already in college for that. And I was not a youth, but I was like, do I qualify? And they're like, we are so desperate for people. Yes, please. Mm. Um, and that was the first time I ever made games, not just with other indigenous people in the room, but grounded around the idea of, you know, you make what you want and none of us are going to tell you what that should look like or anything like this. We even started off the whole thing with like an elder coming in and blessing wow. like the whole space, which mm. like, I'm not going to get that in college. No. <laughs> and I was, I, that was where I made like my very first little solo game, which is Wani Sinowin or Lost, mm. um, which is actually on my itch.io, which uh, it doesn't work all the time, but mostly. And that was a very personal piece. And then as I kind of kept making games in school and realizing there was a disconnect between what I felt when I was in that space and what I felt like when I was in class, I started thinking like, you know, what do I really want? I'm, I'm old. I can't, I'm not long on this earth. What do I want to really be doing with my time? And it was, well, I don't want to be working at a crunch pace. I don't want somebody using me as a shield for their shitty indigenous representation in their game. Mm. And I really don't want to spend my energy convincing people that we exist and should be treated like real humans. Because that that's also happened. So I, I think that's kind of where that impetus for... I'll do it myself. Yeah. I, that's, that really kind of reminded me. It's like, I didn't get into this like intentionally. Like I, I went to art school because I was an artist and I, I wanted access to the tools, like the, the computer programs. You know, I grew up on a reservation that wasn't my own. So mm. it was like, I didn't have, you know, access to, to Photoshop and 3d programs and all stuff. Like I originally kind of wanted to go in, um, with an interest into going into like working on movies. Hmm. Um, that was my original uh, sort of like thing I wanted. Like I really love animation and I originally wanted to do that. And I got there and good God, did I hate animation? Mm. <laughs> it's so tedious. I just don't have the attention span for it. <laughs> um, that's, uh, but you know, like I said, it just became this thing where it's like, Hey, you know, there's these other jobs that you can do. And I didn't think it was going to be any of that. And then when I got in, it was a very similar situation to Megan. It's that whereas she got the experience of having to work with other indigenous people, I was it. Mm -hmm. I never ran into another like outwardly, you know, someone who proclaimed themselves as an indigenous person, as a native American in the United States, like there may have been others, but I never ran into any and it was really a lonely situation. Mm -hmm. Um, and I felt, um, 
you know, just kind of like an outsider most of the time. And it's very similar to growing up on the res where I felt like an outsider as well. And so this entire thing coming to, to Achimo with Megan has kind of opened up this world of more indigenous devs than I ever knew existed. And that's only within the last few years. Mm-hmm. And there's like a whole little community and there's people who like know my name and I'm like, bye. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like, I've only, you know, I've only done a few little things and, and people are like, Oh, well, what'd you work on? I'm like, uh, I mean, I worked on the video games for saw. <laughs> <laughs> you know, little small projects, you know, and it, was, it was a small project, but it was at the time it was like part of the biggest horror franchise of the, you know, the mid two thousands. Mm-hmm. And you know, a couple of little uh, smaller uh, first-person shooters. Um, there was one. It was a uh, Xbox Live and PlayStation online game. It was uh, Blacklight Tango Down, and then we did uh, Retribution, which was a sequel. And I left while well, that one was in pre-production. Um, but it was just like I don't know. It was. It was. The experience was different, and uh, I, I really you know, relate to what Megan was saying. So I'd love to talk to you both more about Hill Agency Purity Decay. Um, Maybe Megan, how would you describe this game in a few sentences to someone who hasn't yet heard of it? It's an indigenous cyber noir detective game. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. has been the byline. It is... (laughs) That is like I, I didn't realize it when we started. That is like so not just what it is. Mm. Um, when I started working on this, my intentionality was that it would be cheesy because we were going to be talking about some dark shit. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't like. I'm not sure that this will work. I mean, Sade keeps laughing. I think it's like a black humor thing for a lot of indigenous yeah. people, where it's like yeah. you can't. It is too hard to talk about a lot of this stuff seriously. It would make you sick to mm. take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things that um, I noticed, and I did the same thing, was like when I was kind of processing my own trauma about my childhood and stuff, was I would make really inappropriate jokes. Um mm-hmm. Which were probably funny, but also like not like in a way that afterwards you'd be like, holy fucking shit, what's wrong with that kid's life? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know any indigenous person, especially under the age of 30, who hasn't had the same experience or hasn't had that same thing where um, they finally get out of that space, they make the joke, and people are like, okay. Um, <laughs> I was gonna say, I think it's one of the reasons uh, Megan and I get along so well is because we have the both same <laughs> fucked up black humor. <laughs> but I want, yeah, and, and but I, I became okay with the uh, "Are you okay?" because it also did make me like question, like, why am I making that joke? Mm. Am I really, you know? And the anger comes uh, when you start stop making the jokes, and then the sadness, and I, I do think like there is that. Uh, processing um so like a lot of my work is all very like trauma informed uh it's kind of how i describe it and so i wanted to do this piece this like uh hill agency as sort of like uh i'm just trying to express 
what it's been like as me experiencing my life as an indigenous person, uh, but through all these different characters. And so, mm. you know, one of the things that I do talk about is the fact that I personally have not had anyone I'm close to go missing or, or murdered, but I have, I, I have had friends have that happen. Um, and you can't get away from it because it's on the news all the time. And mm -hmm. there's always another, like, can you please share this picture? This person is missing. And, you know, it gets, it gets intense. Um, and I did want to talk about it, but mm. you know, you get that weird space of like, well, how do I talk about it as somebody who hasn't experienced it? Um, in terms of like the, up, the up close and too loud experience. And that's where kind of like, Hill came in as this kind of a fantasy of, you know, uh, an indigenous person taking power away from kind of these systems of, you know, the detective and the police and this idea of uh, the state gets to control who takes care of us. And so it was kind of like that taking back power. It was also a way of like exploring a, a future that I it's not cozy exactly. I wouldn't call it that, but I would definitely call it a lot more comfortable than what we're living in for mm -hmm. at least indigenous people in the context of the story. I wanted to look at what would healthy systems of family look like for mm -hmm. indigenous people. Uh, what would, you know, a neighborhood really look like in that healthy system, but also, you know, we still have these oppressive systems. They are much more complex than simply uh, person is bad because evil reasons. And so that's kind of where like the risen city comes in and the citizens of the risen city. And if you played battles um, or played, if you ever like read uh, battle angel, Alita, like mm. you'd be like, I recognize that theme. Um, mm -hmm. And then I added another layer, which is these like flying palaces. Very like, again, digging into the cheese of like, well, this is real. This isn't realistic. I'm like, it's not supposed to be. It's, it's a hyper metaphor. Like they're literally staggered above each other. Mm -hmm. You mentioned um, just before we continued down, you mentioned um, the risen city and, and the cities in the sky and then the world down below. Could you maybe paint us a word picture of sort of the setting of this game at a super high level? The spoilers, of course. Actually, Sade, <laughs> do you want to? Yes, sure, please, Sade. Sure, sure, I'll jump on that one. So um, the best way to think about if we start with the ground city, um, what it is is the, the story itself takes place a long time after an apocalyptic war. Mm. Essentially, the the ground was so polluted and everything that the majority of the population uh, jumped on these arc ships and left. Mm. So it's very much, this is what the Flying Palace is, is one of these arc ships. Um, the Risen City, essentially, was sort of that launching pad. Um, so the citizens who left the ground and came to these sort of uh, proto-utopian sort of Western society. Uh, it's it's like a pre-manufactured city. Mm. And it, it literally just sort of exists there to facilitate uh, the the flying palaces, the, you know, the, the one that remains. And the ground was left to essentially the people that remained, which in a lot of cases uh, are indigenous people. Um, so these people came and they rebuilt their society using what was there before. So we have um, 
our game has this kind of uh when you look at it the ground cities all have like like everything's kind of brick and it's like it's like mm. what would have been there what would have been left over rebuilt so the city it, it has that you know the old school feel kind of of like a you know like the brick brown stones and whatnot where people would have rebuilt these buildings and each building itself is like a almost like a longhouse, like extended families. They all live together. And, you know, you would have like a, a house mother uh, who kind of takes care of things. A lot of our societies are matrilineal. Um, I being Iroquois, uh, Mohawk, Haudenosaunee, Ganyat Gahaga, which we prefer. Um, we are a matrilineal society, so we would have clan mothers. And this is not specifically uh, my nation, but it's influenced by the, like, the matrilineal ideas. Um, so these, you know, the city is all, it's, it's rebuilt, it's reclaimed the people. There's no like real commerce. Mm-hmm. Um, people work together, trade for what you need. And um, if you go to the risen city, that's where it's more of the Western consumer uh, feel, you know, it's sort of a little bit, a little bit mall of America almost. <laughs> <laughs> The big mall of America in the sky. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> and Sadek, follow-up question there. I was seeing an excerpt from a piece um, in PC Gamer, and this was um, from a bit back um, during your Game Jam demo. Um, and Austin Wood writes that aesthetically, the game sits somewhere between classic black and white crime dramas and Picasso. Um, and as the <laughs> lead, you know, artist and the person creating the visuals for this world um what was sort of important to you to to communicate in sort of the visual language that you were creating for this game so that aesthetic actually was created by another designer who was originally on the project during the game design uh, game jam project Mm. they did leave the project and megan brought me on um was it late 2019 uh yeah like mid 2020 yeah so uh a lot of a lot of the kind of the aesthetic was inherited from that original uh what megan and the other previous person had worked on mm-hmm. and uh, megan came to me and she's like i want to do this you know noir indigenous you know cyber futuristic thing and i'm like sold <laughs> where do i sign i'm, I'm in <laughs> and, should, uh, yeah Oh, I should note, though, that it was like it, there was early on a lot of disagreement between me and the artist about the direction that the art was taking because it was going like it was going really Picasso. They just wanted <laughs> to go in a totally different artistic direction. Mm-hmm. And um, that's not why we parted, but I'm pretty sure it had a lot to do with it where I was like, I so they gave me like a line of like three different styles. And I, I was like, oh, this one, I really love it. It's just it was because the characters felt like ink drawings rather than sort of these like expressionist pieces. And mm-hmm. that felt more in line with the direction I was like hoping us to, to go. Um, and they were like, I do not like this. Mm-hmm. Um, so then when I showed Sade, I was like this, please. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, that was actually kind of like a, the test, I guess was like, mm-hmm. I, I needed some promotional material, not promotional. I needed some material for our uh, grant applications. Mm-hmm. So I kind of was like, mm-hmm. I have $500 in my pocket. That's all I got left. I will throw it at you. If you can just make this look pretty. 
and mm-hmm. I'm just gonna and pray. I did. <laughs> it was so nice. And as you've sort of made it, you put your mark on it, Sade. Like, are oh, yeah. were there any? You know, what was coming up for you, and what did you want to communicate in the in what you were bringing to the to the visual? Um, one of the things that I really like brought with it is because I do have previous studio experience. I knew that like that sort of kind of hyper uh, stylized version doesn't really translate well to 3D. It's mm. really off-putting. Um, people have that uncanny valley uh, look to it, and like it really looks cool in the, in 2D. But as soon as you put a 3D dimension on it, it just it's unsettling. Mm. Um, and that, we see that in a lot of other properties as well. Like you'll see something translated from a 2D manga or a, a comic book or whatever, and then you see a, a 3D version of it, and it just looks wrong. Hmm. Um, but so it was just sort of like my knowledge of of how uh, like the production pipeline works, and just sort of my own style, just the way I draw things, just kind of change the characters and sort of the look of things over time. Well, you can. You you have a lot of references. So like so yeah. my my tradition would be Korean Yewa Newa, mm-hmm. um which has a lot in common because both the Cree and Mohawk are under kind of the Anishinaabe umbrella, which is sort of like the I guess the Ur um culture that we both come from. And very similar things but also like very different things and mm-hmm. we, we did have a lot of conversations about that and um i the i remember early on and sorry you can correct me if i'm remembering this wrong we had a lot of conversations where you're really worried that you're like i don't understand your culture so yeah. I'm, I'm probably doing too much mohawkiness in here <laughs> and i was like uh so we kind of stopped and and talked it out and one of the things that we really kind of leaned into was this is kind of hey you and me we're the beginning of this future like literally let's imagine that Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. all we got here is all we got and it's all we can bring forward you Mm -hmm. know as as dystopic as that sounds what does that look like if that's all we've got is this and so we kind of have something that's not quite mohawk but also like not quite creamy tea either Mm -hmm. but very very Anishinaabe. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those things where um, you, if if we look at it from their their experiences as like the characters in their in their future, and we even experience this now, it's like we don't have the same versions of our cultures that our ancestors had, and that far into the future, they wouldn't either. It'd be whatever could be saved, whatever is you know, still being taught what's known. And then however you have to adapt to, you know, what future situation you're in. And we see the same thing now. Um, so it's, it's very much that. The two of you touched a bit on this topic of sort of creating a vision for a future, um, taking indigenous wisdom and placing it into this, building this new future. Um, And on Ashimov's website, you include a quote from game designer, researcher, and writer Elizabeth LaPense, who says, indigenous futurisms is science fiction, which looks to those who came before us to inform the present with hope for future generations. Um, And so with that in mind, 
I was curious to know, like, what do you hope that playing this game will inspire in those who pick it up and play it? Mm. That's a that's a good one. I think there's a couple of different answers depending on who's the one picking it up. Totally. I actually, yeah, I, I, but I do think a lot of designers don't think about that. Um, I actually didn't think about that until I played uh, Badabin by Lisa Jackson and the NFB because I went with a group of indigenous creatives and we all played it and we all talked about how we loved it. We get to like lie down and look at the stars by a <laughs> wigwam. How cool is that? And the producer was upset and we were really confused. Uh, Cause like the more, like as each person went through and came in and gushed about how fun it was and how like relaxing it was, he just mm. got more and more visibly upset. And we were like, what's the problem? <laughs> He's like, it's not supposed to be fun. It's not supposed mm. to be relaxing. It's supposed to be unsettling. And I was like, honey, I am unsettled. <laughs> like, by the settler. Like, I don't know what else. Like, this is great. Like, there's, it's a city that's quiet. Yes, there's parts of it that I was like, my personal future imaginings as an indigenous person would not look anything like this. It doesn't stop the fact that I really enjoy the idea of a major city being quiet at night mm. um, and there being a, a sacred fire nearby and I can just hang out in this little garden and look at the stars. Like, how is that unsettling? And then, because I was working on Imaginative at the time and we did a presentation of it, that's all I was hearing from majority non-Indigenous players was how mm. unsettling and uncomfortable it was. And I was like, my thought was, why? Like, and it's it's because this is not how they're taught to look at the world. Mm. So their way of looking at the world was so much more drastically different than mine. And this is something that I don't really realize. Like, being an urban Indigenous person, you sometimes accidentally or maybe sometimes on purpose think that you think the same way like settlers in the city think because you're like well i'm not around mm. culture i don't get to do this stuff i must be more like them in terms of the way i think and perceive the world and then you hit a thing like that and you realize that is not true you're the things that unsettle them unsettle them because they take for granted certain things Whereas like I have been taught not to take these things for granted or just being indigenous and knowing you're indigenous in these spaces, you kind of like can't take it for granted that, you know, your place is safe or that this is how it'll always be because you know that you're surviving in the post apocalypse. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So if you want to kind of go into like what we talked about for that. Um, this, so I actually only moved back to Seattle within the last two years so I, I was living in north central washington uh, on the colville indian reservation so confederated tribes it's 12 different nations on one reservation but it's a, it's a very rural place it's a million point four acres um a friend of mine inherited uh his his allotment from his grandmother and i was living with him and we were the only house for seven miles mm. And by a big lake, and there was no light pollution. There was no noise. It was literally go out, sit on the deck in the middle of the night, and just stare at the sky, and just be. And there are lots of people who just like you know, it's like, oh, you don't have your lights on. It's like, no, why would I? Mm -hmm. 
I'm just sitting in the dark. They're like, well, you know, what if there's animals or, you know, creepy yeah. crawlies or spooks and whatnot? And it's just like, oh, they're there. <laughs> it's like, there's totally, you know, like this lake is known to be haunted. But, you know, it is what it is. And you just, you just exist, you know, you be. And, uh, you know, for me, when I first moved to Seattle, like in the mid 2000s, one of the things I thought was crazy is like coming from a reservation that it was like, oh, the city, it's so big, it's so alive. And I noticed at a certain time of night, Seattle would shut down mm-hmm. and like almost like a small town. And I'd be out wandering around in the middle of the night and there'd be no one around, you know, a few people here and there. But I could wander around like the major corridors of downtown and I'd be the only person. And to me, that was always very comforting because I grew up around that. Mm-hmm. And it's just sort of like, I enjoy that existing. Um, and I think, you know, uh, because I don't have that same urban experience, I don't, I don't have that same like disquiet, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's weird. We put a lot into the design of these spaces based on what we think for the ground, at least what we think it should be like. And while you don't get to experience a full like day night cycle, you do kind of get to experience a little bit of what it's like to literally live next to everyone you're related to and who Mm -hmm. loves you. Um, And you're like your best friend literally runs the cafe three houses down and you go and hang out there all day. And Mm -hmm. your cousins are running around like the little jerks they are (laughs) ruining stuff. But also it's really nice to be around little kids and there's old people around and, um, and, you know, adopted family members and stuff. And that we we kind of wanted to start there. And I I think there was one article that was like, Oh, it's already looking so dystopic. And I was like, (laughs) that's the nicest part of the game. Yeah. Um, but I, I do know that people are going to have a different experience and I do suspect, I don't know, but I do suspect people are going to get into the risen city and they're going to feel more comfortable there mm-hmm. and they're not going to really examine why they feel more comfortable there, even though it's so very carefully designed to feel fake. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have the flying palaces, which I think we kind of uh, saw and I kind of riffed on that, uh, that whole thing that happened with um, the great Gatsby yes. when that came out and people did not understand the plot. Uh, and just focused on the aesthetics mm. and how beautiful and expensive it was. And we really leaned into that. So we're fully expecting people to be all like, can I spend more time in the flying palace? And I was like, it's so barren of life. Why would you want to? And that's what happens as you go up. There's less and less. Yeah. The, the, the thing people have to understand is as you, as you go up in the tiers, it literally is a veneer. Mm. It is a, it is a, it's all for show and there's no substance there. It's essentially uh, one of the best ways I could describe working with my team when we're thinking about Risen City is if everything was modular flat pack like Ikea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ikea looks great until you flake the veneer. And then it's just the, the MDF underneath. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that gets a little wet and it all falls apart. I mean, I think it's really fascinating that folks would respond to what they see in the ground as calling it dystopian and reacting in fear just because 
we're not aware of how deeply ingrained it is to lean into individualistic society, to mm-hmm. see nature as something to be controlled or something to be feared rather than something that we can coexist with. Like the fact that people are seeing buildings with nature entwined in them and thinking, oh, they must be falling apart and the remains of the apocalypse and not, no, this is actually how it could be if we weren't destroying <laughs> our home. Um, that is just utterly fascinating. Um, and makes me really excited to play this game. Um, one more thing I wanted to touch on was the fact that this is a noir game. Very specifically, it's inspired. It's got that kind of old Hollywood black and white look. You know, we've got dames. We've got this hard-boiled detective. Um, and in another piece written about um, the kind of sort of early um, demo of the game, um, this is for Broken Pencil um, by author Al Donato. Um, and they wrote, Noir as a gen- as a genre is white. Um, silver screen sleuths were typically hard boiled in heady broths of French cynicism, German aesthetics, and American post war masculinity. Their world weary individualistic outlooks legitimized themselves through monologues afflicted with metaphors and misogyny. Um, and a lot of the pieces that I've seen about this game and a lot of the excitement comes from the way um, that. Uh, Hill Agency is sort of taking its own approach to noir. And and you, Megan, I've seen in previous interviews sort of talking about the kind of noir world that you wanted to build. Um, and so to that point, how would the two of you sort of describe the way that Hill Agency um, makes noir its own? And what aspects of noir did you want to take with you? And what aspects did you want to leave behind? So one thing I think it got left out of that article, and I think I've only ever been able to bring this up at literature th- stuff, but uh, noir is, for all intents and purposes, the language of men and, and women traumatized by World War One and Two. And um, if you know the history of Art Deco, um, a lot of people don't actually recognize that basically everything after World War II was an attempt to recapture that little brief moment between World War One and Two where they thought everything was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, even like like if if you explore the uh, aesthetic of the eighties, even that is a and again an attempt to recapture the Art Deco, and it's been this kind of PTSD response to kind of talk about things in this way and. I mean, essentially, noir is for, you know, for all intents and purposes, a bunch of people's attempt to explain their PTSD to the public. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at the story, it's about people who are broken or aren't good and are, you know, trying to scrape by in this society that literally doesn't care about them. And this would have been that first time because there wasn't enough time between world war one and two for the collective consciousness of American society to realize that, Holy crap, our government does not give a fuck about our vets. Mm -hmm. Um, And basically the unspoken byline was either produce or die. Mm. If you can't be useful to us, why are you even here? Uh, Just an absolute refusal to engage with any kind of community reciprocity. Like you're a government, a government is only there to serve the people, but you're essentially acting like the people are there to serve you, which is really like when 
we all knew this wasn't going to work. And a lot of people knew it. And so that's why I thought noir, because noir already has this language ingrained of it, of mm. the language of traumatized people and the language of people who are unwanted. Um, and in a way, it's them trying to not be those things as badly as they do it, um, which, you know, that's that's one of the things we're starting to learn as we learn more about trauma is that we only can work within the language we know. So if you know the language of misogyny, if you know the language of power, if you know the language of capitalism, and that's all you know, um, that's what you're going to use. And I was like, that's the indigenous experience is either do what we want, give us what we want, or die. Um, and then sometimes not even the first two parts. Yeah. So we were like, well, what's more noir than being indigenous in North America? And we kind of just pushed it through. So like Hill is a character who is essentially um, as much as we could make her in the way it would make sense. That early noir character, that detective transposed into the future. So, you know, she's an ex that. Um, in a proxy war that she should never have been involved in, that no one should have been involved in. She's literally responsible for the death of one of her neighbor's brothers, like mm-hmm. who is a friend. So that she carries a lot of heaviness and her way of dealing with it, which is a lot of us, is to pretend it didn't happen. Yeah, just not. Uh, it didn't. Um, everyone knows it did. Everybody, uh, nobody denies that this is a reality. Um, when faced with it, she doesn't deny it, but also does not want to engage with it. There's something very early that actually happens in the tutorial where you go and talk to Bato, and if you pick the right choice, uh, he'll invite you to the memorial dinner, mm. and you'll just kind of like, she's like, yeah, okay, uh, and then just try to fade out of that conversation. And that's something I've experienced. That's something I've seen. I've, I've had it happen to me where it's like not wanting to engage in your trauma is like a totally legitimate response to trauma. Now let's see, what does that look like with a character who cannot avoid this? So mm-hmm. that's kind of Hill's story is. And one of the things that was very difficult and I will find out if I achieve this years from now when people are complaining about it um, <laughs> is Am I going to get that across or am I going to traumatize people talking about this stuff? That's the hard Mm. part about doing noir is it's heavy shit. Even though noir is cheesy, uh, I think it's impossible to do it delicately. Mm. I just wanted to give space, Sade, if there was anything you wanted to add. You know, the nature of, you know, un unexamined trauma that is happening with Hill and, you know, even, even ourselves in our, our own cultures, you know, we see a lot of this um, going back to like some of these new shows that are coming out uh, like reservation dogs. A lot of that involves the, like the PTSD of death and trauma in a community. Um, Myself personally, I, before we started recording, I told you guys that I was an EMT and a firefighter for 10 years on a reservation. Um, I have a lot of things that I don't talk about, won't talk about, don't think about. 
And that's one of the reasons this like really speaks to me as far as like the characters go. Because I have been Hill. I have been Bato. I've been, you know, all these different characters that we have in the game. And you know, the chance to maybe give somebody the opportunity through this game to maybe see something that lets them address that or, mm-hmm. you know, even face it. Um, mm-hmm. That's really important. And it's, like I said, we do use a lot of the cheese in our own lives and, you know, to the game too. Um, to deflect Mm. because it's it's hard work yeah i mean facing our trauma head-on can be horrifying and incredibly difficult and so there's something about playing a game where you can maybe maybe indirectly process something without having to necessarily put yourself into it but by playing these stories maybe you can touch something within yourself and understand yourself a bit better. Um, And I think that really comes through with how you two are talking about Hill Agency. Mm -hmm. Um, It's been amazing to share space with the both of you today. I can't believe our time is is already up. I'm sorry. It's even over time. Um, But where can folks follow your work um, and keep up with the game and buy Hill Agency? Yeah. um, Well, so we're on both itch.io uh, just look for Atchmos Dallas on Games or look for Hill Agency. Uh, we're also on Steam. And again, you just look for Hill Agency. We're literally the only thing called that. So mm-hmm. it's easy to find. <laughs> um, you can also find us at Twitter at uh, Achimo Games. And we're on Instagram at Achimo underscore games, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but Sade, what's your personal? You have Instagram. Oh, yeah. I have an Instagram and a Twitter. Um, I post stuff uh just under my first name Satnegronis at Instagram and then also on Twitter. Um uh, on Twitter sometimes I get ranty. Uh, mm-hmm. not not as often as I, I do on Facebook, but my I, I lock down my personal Facebook and that's where I do most of my ranting because I'm an old man now. <laughs> <laughs> Got to that's that's your right as an old man. Sade, Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. up for today's session of pixel therapy thank you for tuning in and we hope that listening to our thoughts and feelings gave you some thoughts and feelings of your own if you want more pixel therapy come check us out at patreon.com slash pixel therapy pod where you can snag that monthly bonus episode for just two dollars a month plus opportunities to get involved with the community and influence the show directly if you're not up for contributing monetarily but you enjoyed this episode you can show your support for free by rating and reviewing us on apple podcasts and following us on twitter and instagram at pixel therapy pod That stuff is just as important, and we appreciate it just as much. Remember that Pixel Therapy is a happy member of the But Why Though Podcast Network, so you can support us by supporting them and heading over to butwhythoughpodcast.com. That's though with a T-H-O. Take a peek at the inclusive geek community they're building around pop culture news, reviews, and kick-ass podcasts like yours truly. And you can keep up with all of this stuff and more by visiting our website at pixeltherapypod.com. 
finally, since we like to put our money and our energy where our mouth is, we end every episode with a recommended side quest. This week, we are so excited to talk to you about cats.org.uk, the website for cats protection, um, an organization that was founded in 1927 and has grown to become the UK's leading cat charity. Blue 12 Studio, the developer of Stray, has actually partnered with cats.org.uk, and you can visit their website to sign up to be a possum player and stream with the goal of raising money for homeless cats. Um, Even if you're an inexperienced or even first-time streamer, that is no problem at all. Cats Protection will set you up with a fundraising pack, tips to support your event, and great social media graphics via email to help you with your fundraising. Um, So to learn more about possum players, donate, or just, you know, get involved with an awesome organization, you can visit cats.org.uk. Thank you for that side quest, Spencer. That is our show for today. So go forth, run a story mission, level up some stats, and don't forget to hug an NPC every now and then. We'll be back soon with some more Pixel Therapy. Therapy. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>